Welcome to episode 27, where I'm interviewing Jesse Swagtree. He's a contractor and a real estate investor in Houston, Texas. He gives insight on his short-term lease agreements and how it benefits him in his market and how it benefits you in the shaky real estate rental market due to COVID-19 and also how to work with contractors. He also helps close the gap of understanding when it comes to the professional relationship between an investor and a contractor. He's a unique combination of being a contractor and a real estate investor. With a perspective on both sides, I believe you will appreciate. Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com where we provide content on real estate, personal finances, and self-development. Share your story and information by posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other outlets. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And thank you for listening. All right, so appreciate you, Jesse. You make taking the time this evening. I think this will be a great informational conversation. And uh, I think we'll, maybe I could definitely learn a lot from you. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do. Uh, my name is Jesse Swaggerty. I, well, let's see, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in construction. I have an engineering degree. Uh, my wife and I do real estate uh, investment. We flip houses, we have rentals. Um, she's a realtor and uh, I am a contractor in Houston, Texas. Uh, we grew up in, both of us grew up in New Mexico actually. And uh, we got into, I don't know, she got into real estate through her mom. I got into construction through my dad. We met in high school years ago uh, and we kind of grew apart and, and didn't see each other for 12 years. And then uh, here about five years ago, we, we uh, reconnected through Facebook, got back together, got married and realized that uh, we both really had a, a, a good, you know, good common common ground with real estate and uh, construction. So that's pretty much what we, how we landed in what we're doing now. I like that. Um, and it's funny how that worked, right? Construction and real estate. Um, with, with that, because you said she's a realtor. So I, I'm assuming when y'all do y'all flips, she is the real estate agent in those flips. Yeah, she is. But we also have, uh, we have a couple other, uh, well, she has a couple of other real estate agents that that uh, we partner with. So they kind of tag team a lot of the stuff that we do, whether it's, you know, list, how, you know, listing houses or, uh, or listing our own flips, uh, they, they kind of work together, but she's typically the listing agent of record on our flips. And I asked that because I heard a lot of people, what they do is if they are an investor and also a realtor, what they do is they say, Hey, you don't have to pay closing costs or like my commission if you settle on this deal. So they kind of bargain their commission in order to get a seller to um, settle on something. Uh, Absolutely. Well, and I, I, you know, I would, 
I'm not a realtor, so I don't know all the nuts and bolts, but a few, you know, I've picked up a few things. Um, I know that like the 6% commission is, is more of a, uh, industry standard. It's not necessarily a set rate. Um, different realtors can adjust that, that rate to whatever they want. And even, you know, you can, and it's really, it's the listing agent that gets the 6%. Typically they agree with the buyer's agent to split it 3% and 3%. So there's always negotiation there between, uh, between the realtors, the different agents. I, that's about as much as I know <laughs> being a realtor. I've learned that just kind of some tips and tricks through, through, especially with her being the, the listing agent is it can help you, you can help us sell a house. Obviously, if, uh, if we can negotiate with the buyer's agent uh, on the deal a little bit. And so um, with the commission, uh, with you being, it uh, sounds like you primarily do flips. Uh, what does your rent, uh, your real estate portfolio look like right now? Uh, on our rental portfolio. Um, currently we actually, we've uh, unloaded a couple recently this year. Um, we have four, four doors currently. Um, there two of them are condo actually, sorry, five doors, three condos and two, uh, just single family homes that are actually really close by to our house. So it's pretty awesome for, we self-manage everything. We don't, we don't outsource the uh, property management. So it's nice to have everything kind of nearby. We can go over you, and clog a toilet if we need to. True, exactly. That does make it very convenient. Uh, were those single family homes your own flips and you just decided to keep them? Um, one of them was two, let's see, two of them were flips that we actually just uh, rolled into our own portfolio. The, it just depends. Some of the numbers, uh, you know, when we look at a house, we pretty much always look at it as a flip. Um, that's just where the price is best for, for buying. When we very first got into this, of course, we were looking at everything as buying it as, as uh, investment properties, just, or sorry, as uh, rentals. Mm -hmm. But then we kind of learned about private money and we learned about, uh, you know, the bar system and everything. And, yep. and it just kind of made sense to buy everything as, as flips to start. And then if, if the rental rates that are coming in and there's not enough, you know, it's not anything really significantly wrong with the house. It makes sense to just keep it and refinance it. And we, we will do that. Um, which we've done, we did that on a couple of our condos and, uh, that's, uh, that's how we ended up with, with the first condos. And then we just kind of started adding more because we were in that same uh, complex as condos it became available. And it worked out for you. Uh, do you, do you pay uh, condo association fees or, or homeowner association fees with the condos? Yeah, we do. They're quite expensive, but we do, uh, we do furnished the condos. They're all one bedroom. So we furnish them and then we, uh, we rent them out as short term rentals. Uh, so like six months, uh, three months, typically I had, well, it depends. I mean, you, you basically, we rent on, on, we have a, of a stair step process same as you would on airbnb you know you give discounts for longer terms but you know anything i think uh three weeks is our minimum stay that we require right now and then obviously the longer they stay the lower the, the rate is and is that because of the what, what is it about your market to where you can you can do that because i know in my area like we have to do 12 months 13 because it's a military town so people are here to stay 
uh, for the most part in our area? Uh, well, there's, there, well, with anything in real estate, there's loopholes, right? So it's, uh, the contract is written for one year, but then you obviously you just include a clause that says uh, that they do not have to pay any early termination to get out of their lease if their contract expires. So you give the renter, the tenant, you basically, you know what you know when they think they're going to be they're going to be leaving, but you don't lock them into anything that makes them pay if they have to leave earlier than a year. So you actually write it up for a year, but then you tie that contract to their employment contract, so that if they're uh, like, for instance, we do traveling nurse rentals. So the nurses they come in, we know that they're probably not going to be there for a year, but we write them a one-year lease and then have a clause in our uh, rental agreement that says if their contract expires prior to one year from this date that we will not, you know, there won't be any uh, uh, fallback or they don't have, you know what I mean? They're not forfeiting their security deposit or whatever. So basically as soon as their contract is up, okay, cool. We let them out of the lease, find somebody else. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's a one-year lease, but we write it so that they can get out of it if they need to. So okay, you negotiate I wonder, with your renter, however. That's interesting you say that because I wonder if I can do that with uh, an associate with people losing their jobs. Hey, here's a clause. If you happen to lose your job because of COVID, you can get out of the lease free and clear. That way, I don't have to deal with you. You know, living there for free, and you get that. You know, you're getting out of there scot free. Yeah, I mean everything's negotiable. But at the end of the day, the the, the HOA uh, they just don't want to see short term lease on your rental agreement. They want to see that you have a one year minimum. So you put that in there as a one year minimum, but then you add clauses in and you negotiate. You negotiate whatever you you know anything you want to negotiate with a with a tenant as long as you're not. Uh, uh, whatever you're not discriminating or anything and you're not yes. breaking any laws, but you can always put something in there that says, Hey, if this is something you're concerned about, I'm happy to add this into our contract that that will let you out of the lease and you're under no obligation to, uh, to pay for the rest of the year, just because such and such happened. And there's, that's perfectly legal. Interesting. And it should be, I mean, that's the agreements between you and the, the renter, right? Like it's, it's fair for them. It's fair for you. And the HOA, they can't say you can't do that. They can say no less than one year leases. You didn't know that they were going to lose their job, right? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Yeah, that's because uh, they do something similar to that in this area. Uh, we have like a military clause. People sometimes get uh, short fuse orders and they have to go to, you know, Africa or the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they, that we use that clause in a lot of the leases in the area. And a lot of the people out here that are landlords are prior military. So they understand and it gets people out of their mm -hmm. leases pretty quickly. So, yeah, I guess you could have that for on the civilian side as well. It's very, it's just as likely. Same thing. Yeah. It's just a clause that, uh, you know, and you can tell your tenant, like, you know, I have to put one year lease in order to even be able to rent to you. Uh, but if you have any concerns that would keep you from fulfilling the one year lease, what are those concerns? And let's see if it's something that we can address in the contract. 
Awesome. And so since you primarily uh, do flips, what, do you, what is your criteria for flip for flips when you when you're looking for your uh, potential flips? I am a huge nerd. So the advantage of my wife being a realtor gives me obviously access well, through her to MLS. to MLS, which is, you know, it's very, very handy. And I'm, I love spreadsheets. I'm just a dork when it comes to spreadsheets. So I like to actually go through and prioritize uh, subdivisions or areas that I call hot zones um, within my my city that that have the widest uh, range or variance in uh, market price or price per square foot. So if you got a lot of stuff selling in the one hundred dollars per square foot, and I don't know what it's like in Virginia, but here in Texas, you know, uh, based on what how close into downtown you are, you can pretty much uh, summarize the price per square foot and what everything's going to be, but anything that has like a hundred dollar per square foot, uh, variance between, between, you know, in, in sales price, if you got a certain number of houses that sold in this one area or zip code, and they've got a hundred houses that sold in this last six months. And I don't just go strictly by zip code, but, mm-hmm. but for example, uh, you know, they had a hundred houses that sold in the, in the hundreds per square foot and they had a couple hundred that sold in the one fifties per square foot and uh, another hundred that sold in the two hundreds. That to me would be a good variance. That means that you've got a, you've got a hundred dollars per square foot in range there where some people are selling their house, uh, for a hundred dollars per square foot, but then within half a mile of you, there's houses that are selling for 200 a square foot. So that makes it very easy um, and of course we've, you know, we research the hell out of a lot of things and get to know a lot of people. So, you know, appraisers at the end of the day, they just got to be able to justify that sales price. Um, so you can go in and over improve a house and then the appraisers, they can't, they can't get to that number and it won't appraise for how much you are trying to sell it for. It doesn't matter what the market would pay for it. Nobody can lend on it and then therefore nobody can afford it. So, I start my search criteria with basically kind of uh, the appraiser um, criteria, which is, you know, within a certain radius, um, can they justify the sales price? And then also that helps me with negotiating the purchase price of, uh, you know, are there other houses in your neighborhood that are selling at this low price point? Uh, and also houses selling at the high price point. Those are those are the best. And I mean, those are pretty much easily identifiable whenever you're driving around too to see. You know, here's some older houses that are dilapidated right next to a house that's been recently fixed up or recently a new build or whatever. Um, so that's kind of our criteria to, for flips. We don't really have a specific set. I mean. Three bedroom, two bath is is hard to beat. That's it's always easier to sell. Once you go less than two bathrooms, you really got to start thinking. Okay, is there a really good school here? There's some reason why people would be willing to sacrifice an extra bathroom just so that they can live in this area, um, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's really my my criteria for searching anything that comes up that has that ability to get the 
the eventual sales price and the and the margin that we need to make make sense of it. And also, if it's uh, uh, we you know we calculate the rental rates. What are the average rental rates on that uh, in that neighborhood? I mean, what, we had a flip. Uh, actually, my first flip, we were going to buy it as a rental, but the rental rates on it didn't make sense. But the price we could buy it at for versus the price we could sell it for, it made total sense as a flip. So that's really what kind of jumped us into the flipping game. Yeah, you had two different exit strategies. You could turn into a rental or you could turn into a flip. Do you believe in um, those three bedroom, one baths? If there, if there's enough square footage, do you uh, believe in adding a, a, a another bathroom to make it a three and two? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. If you can add a bathroom, definitely add a bathroom. Um, if you can add a bedroom, though, it doesn't always make sense. Um, just... Again, depends depends on the comps. You really got to look at what else is selling in that neighborhood, and and what people are paying in the neighborhood for uh, for stuff like that. It's it's not always based on the market. It's has a lot to do with the appraiser appraisal values on stuff as well. What square footage uh, house makes sense? Like if I have a thousand square foot house and it's a three bedroom, one bath. Does it make sense to, to make a two, two bedroom, uh, another bathroom, or do I need to get to about the twelve hundred square footage range? Um, I don't know. That's it's probably just a matter of personal preference, I guess. I, you know, when you the, the smaller houses, you can you can have extra bedrooms and bathrooms in a smaller house, but then you have much smaller rooms. Some people like smaller rooms. Uh, some people like bigger rooms. It, it really kind of just depends on your market and your area, I guess. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a one size fits all. You know what I mean? I don't think there's a set criteria on square footage. Most of the houses that are being built right now, I mean, you talk about contractors, but your house builders, they don't even want to build a house that's less than 2000 square foot anymore. They just, there's not enough margin in it. It doesn't make sense if you factor in how much a kitchen costs and a bathroom costs and the plumbing and the all the stuff that you have to do to a house. That it doesn't matter if it's a five thousand square foot house or a nine hundred square foot house. That thing has to have a toilet. That thing has to have a stove. It has to have a fridge. So some of those costs uh, pass a point of diminishing returns whenever you start to go smaller on your square footage for houses. So that's why a lot of builders, they don't really want to touch houses less than a certain size. So new houses that are being built uh, in the, you know, wherever in the big developments, uh, new subdivisions or whatever, they're typically going to be, they're going to be trying to shoot for 2,000 square foot or yeah, 2,000 square foot on those houses because then they can get to the price point where it makes sense to carry their overhead and deal with the, the construction. And then smaller houses, new builds, um, they're usually built on a budget. They're, they're slapped together really quick. They're trying to knock out as many houses as they can at a cheap price. So you're going to get a much lower quality house once it's less than 2,000 square foot. Interesting. And so that's the difference between uh, what a builder's threshold will be and then a contractor. Because I, we had talked to a builder that's actually in Houston, uh, yesterday and they were telling us about the developments that they do and it, it, it kind of left me confused at certain times and I had to clarify okay well if 
what's the difference between a contractor and a builder then? Cause, or, cause it sounds like y'all kind of do the same thing, but what you're telling me is the, the size of the project. Yeah. Well, I mean, a builder, you know, a builder is going to, they're going to handle everything. And I mean, a builder is a general contractor. The general contractor just is somebody who contracts out to somebody to perform uh, some work. Uh, but a builder, you know, is going to go typically from the ground up, brand new, nothing there, blank slate. Um, they might do some additions and stuff like that. But a builder, typically, they don't want to mess with uh, with renovations, um, you know, remodels, stuff like that, or flips. Now, they'd be happy to knock down a house and build a new house in its place. But, you know, most of your builders, they want to build brand new from scratch and that's not to say builders don't remodel i'm sure there's tons of, of i mean i know lots of builders who remodel i know lots of remodelers who build houses as well it's just there's a difference i say when a builder i'm just saying when somebody's building a house this is what makes sense uh for for a new build and this is what typically doesn't unless it's a huge development where they're building a lot of houses and they have repeat um, but you gotta, you gotta, you know, money, money and financing and carrying costs and material pricing and all that stuff really starts to come into play when, when you're building a house, unless you're building a custom house. Gotcha. And so, uh, since we talked about contracting and I know you said you've been kind of contracting, uh, in and out for the last couple of years, uh, what type of jobs do you usually take? Um, are you, are you kind of general or you take specific, you do specific things? Oh, no, I'm, I take everything. I mean, I'm a general contractor um, in Texas, which is different than a lot of, I mean, every state has different rules uh, and regulations on it. Texas specifically does not require a general contracting license. So I actually don't have to specify what I do. Now, if I were to do any plumbing, that does require, you know, a license, electrical, that requires license, uh, HVAC, mechanical, all that stuff. But as far as framing, uh, you know, siding, uh, remodels, flooring, stuff like that. You don't, you do not need a license to do that. You do have to have a permit, but the permitting is handled in the local jurisdiction. So it's either your city or your county uh, where you have to go pull the permits and do it and get the inspections. Um, so, yeah, so here I do pretty much everything. And then I, I've got, you know, obviously I've got my subcontractors I go to for, for the things that require licenses. Um, but I'm, I can do anything that's in, that falls within general contracting. Uh, so you usually pull trade, the permits, not the, not the client? Right. Well, I pull the permits, the client can pull the permits or the contract can pull the permits here. I don't know how that is everywhere. I know that here in Houston, uh, the contractor can pull the permits on behalf of the client. And I've, I've been told, so you, this is why I really appreciate this conversation because it's always been a conversation I have with other investors and how they deal with contractors and not a contractor mm -hmm. talking to me on how they deal with clients or, or other investors. Mm -hmm. And so what, when I talk to other investors, they say, hey, you know, get your contractor to get the permit because then they are held liable for making sure you meet zone or the you know, inspection. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? From a contractor standpoint, anything that can be in my control is to my benefit, right? So uh, if the client has 
holds the permit, then I'm at the mercy of the client to make sure they get everything listed in there. It's it, and make sure they get everything right. So it's just if there's any changes or there's any problems with the permitting or anything, that's just one you know, that's a mediator or another step between me and getting to my end goal, which is getting your project finished. So anything that I can do that I can have full uh, autonomy over that is to my advantage because then I don't have to go through a third party or some mediator. So I, I prefer to pull my own permits. Um, you know, I produce, well, course i produce a lot of my own drawings and stuff but if, if i can get wow. uh well i produce meaning i if somebody wants a design i've got like an engineer that i go to that can draft it up or an architect and all that stuff but i do a lot of my own like me personally i do a lot of like concept designs and modeling and dimensioning and framed you know the uh like the framing drawings and stuff like that 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 does not require an actual engineering stamp I can whip those things out, uh, given my guys, I can make the changes on the spot. It's just, like I said, it's to me, it's all about, I like to have full control of as much as possible. Uh, but that's also not, not everybody operates that way. That's, I think that's a bit of an anomaly. Um, but I, I would say that I think most contractors prefer to have, if they're a good contractor, they prefer to actually have the control and the, uh, the say so in, in a lot of that stuff so that they can make sure that they are uh, pushing schedule and and following up on things and, and there's just less unknowns when there's other people involved. Uh, how do you feel about, um, so we've had a few contractors, one asked for 80% down, it was like a $4,000 job and he wanted out of the 4,400, he wanted like 3,800 down. Um, we've had some where, hey, I pay for the materials up front and then, you know, then the contractor does the job and then we pay at the end. Uh, how do you usually do business with uh, stuff with uh, projects like that? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question it, that I'm in a lot of contractor groups um, on Facebook and that's a debate. Obviously on the contractor side, uh, contractors are biased. They're like, no, take 50% down minimum or don't do the job. Walk away from the job unless you get a 50% down. I I see value both ways. And then I've, I've seen a lot of customers I, on, I'm on some next door, uh, you know, um, forums where people are talking about like the customers are talking about, I've never been asked to pay 50% upfront in my life. And people like walk away, get rid of that contractor. If he wants 50% down contractors should not be asking for money down. There's, there's advantages and disadvantages both ways. Um, as a contractor, I prefer to have 50% down upfront. That helps me pay for your materials. That helps me carry some of uh, the labor costs through the project. And then I'm doing my part. So it's basically you're sandwiching, making a sandwich out of the project. You know, you give me half upfront, I go do the project. Uh, you pay me the rest when I do a good job. If I don't do a good job, uh, we gotta <laughs> negotiate how much you're gonna pay me at the end, right? Um, but I mean, the, the way around that to me is there should be a contract. I figure not a way around it, but I, I think regardless of how it's handled, I think there should always be a contract in place that says, here's the agreement between the contractor and the customer or client. Uh, and here's the scope of work that's being agreed to be performed. And it should be very detailed and 
contractor, if there's things that they are not going to perform, uh, it should be listed in there as well and say, you know, I am making it clear that I'm not accountable, that if we uncover a wall and find termite damage and I didn't expect termite damage, I'm not fixing that for you unless you pay me extra. Like that's going to be extra cost. Um, you know, material, I know that was kind of a question you guys had, but like if a client wants to furnish the material, that needs to be specified what material is going to be provided, uh, when it's going to be provided, uh, how much of it's going to be provided, and and where it's going to be stored and, and handled. Like, is it going to be on the job site? Am I going to have to paint? Am I going to have to cover all this material while I paint your walls and texture? Um, do I have to worry about my guys accidentally scratching uh, your new stove because you it showed up before we even had sheetrock on the walls. Like, do I, do, what kind of stuff do I need to worry about um, as far as those agreements? So, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a 30 page document. It's just a, it's just a matter of expectation and communication between the client and the contractor. And most good contractors, they understand they're going to come to you and they're going to have a contract or some kind of agreement that you sign that details a bunch of that stuff, not because they're a-holes, because they're a good contractor. It's, about, it's all about communication and expectation. So that's, that's to me, that's uh, uh, what's most important is the contract. And if you have a good contract in place, then, you know, the 50% down, the 80% down, 10% down, it doesn't even matter what the down payment is because you both have a copy of that document. Here's what we said we were going to do. Here's you signed it. I signed it. We both have a copy. And if I don't perform, uh, you've got a document in your hand that says exactly what I'm supposed to do for you, whether I want 50% down or not. Um, uh, so that's what I think. And, and most contractors, most good contractors will say that. But I know that a lot of investors, they, they, don't, they know that good contractors come at a premium and they're trying to it makes sense. Everybody, nobody's trying to lose money in this business. So you want to find contractors you can work with at a decent price so you can get work done at a, at a discount. And a lot of those guys that, that work at a discount, they don't, they don't care about contracts. They don't understand contracts. They want that 50% down up front or 80% of whatever. And then we'll do the job and you pay the rest whenever it's done. Um, I, I can't, I, that's, that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> if that answers so one thing question, I'm no. glad you said about the price difference, because um, I, I guess every once in a while you may get lucky with that guy that you could pay $200 to paint your whole house, you know, but mm -hmm. the majority of the time I've noticed you do get what you pay for. And uh, right now, what I've known, what I've, my own experience in the last 18 months of me being an investor is more times I've been able to get a better quality out a like a contractor business like somebody I can pick I can pick up the phone I can call multiple people mm -hmm. you know if Jeff came out there and he didn't finish the job or it didn't pass city inspection they say hey instead of Jeff we're going to send Jimmy out there and they're going to finish it up versus when I've had that one guy contractor that didn't finish what he wanted and then he's not answering his phone like it's hard to get into back in touch with him uh, so we haven't found that type of person yet, but with the company, the big companies, if it's like a big project that I can't do myself, uh, I've had more mm -hmm. success with that. Uh, do you think it's because of the 
the customer service side, con these type of contractors do not have uh, the customer service, uh, I guess, standards or principles instilled in them yet. And that's what separates a contractor from somebody that has the business side of it. I, 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 it's, I think it's resources. I think it's limitations on resources. I don't think any contractor actually wants to screw anybody over. I think every contractor, cheap ones and high priced ones, ultimately want to do good work. They want to be known for their craftsmanship and their, uh, their skills, and they want everybody to respect them as a tradesman. I think that people that are under, uh, well, that are under-resourced or maybe bite off more than they can chew on a project, they are very, they get cornered, right? And they don't know how to handle it. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of that they don't want to be professional. It's that they, uh, they are overwhelmed. Maybe they bid your job, they mess something up, and now they've got some another big job and they, it's going to hurt them more by pulling off of this big job with this other client uh, to come fix your thing. So they're, they're having to choose between, okay, is my current client more important or the past client more important to my future business and to my whatever, to making money. And, and they just kind of, they get stuck into a, uh, a situation that they, they can't always get out of. Um, so I, I don't think anybody is inherently evil <laughs> and intends to screw anybody over. I think it's just capabilities and resources and, and smaller guys, they're able to give you a better price because they're hungry. They need the work. The bigger guys, they have a lot of overhead. They spend a lot on marketing. Uh, they've got a lot of costs uh, that, that you are indirectly covering with inside their margin. Um, but they keep a lot of work. They keep a lot of backlog. They have another guy that's freed up because he just came off another job and can come over and fix that. And they have a reputation to, to uphold. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the big guys, the more expensive guys, they, they are, they have a lot more cost so that they can do stuff like that. So they can warranty their work as well. I mean, that's, that's something you don't get out of a lot of small guys is, is they're afraid to even yeah. say the word warranty because they know that they, it, they're going to be the ones that haven't come back and fix it, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, you're right. That, was, that actually was one of the big differences as well as why we went with the company versus the one-man show was the fact that they also provided a war, uh, warranty. Uh, we had three water heaters that were installed and uh, the guy was going to, you know, contract out getting, you know, somebody to come through there and just didn't seem on top of it, it just didn't seem too confident as well and couldn't guarantee us as much as that big company did. Um, and I, I feel like when it, when it comes to definitely the habitability of our tenants, like, like I need to get this right the first time. Uh, cause obviously, you know, the water heaters not, you know, being an operable would completely, uh, you know, jack up how the, how our tenants would live. I think that's uh that's one thing I've always found interesting because I uh and you know what I need to probably follow those contractor groups so I can get an inside thought on on how y'all think because you just said a few things and a few thought processes that I never thought of because I haven't been on your side and I, I really feel like when it comes to relationships it's good to know both sides of the house because each everybody has their own uh fears and need their own assurances when it comes to business hey man you're gonna take care of me like mm -hmm. I'm trying to take care of, you know you uh are we on the same page here 
And I think you you said something right. Uh, and I never thought about that. Yeah, okay, I may ask for 80% down, but we're going to do a contract. Either way, I'm binded to this uh, project. So I just need these material, you know, this money for materials. Um, what, what do you do to make sure you don't get rolled in projects that you don't overbook yourself? Or what do you recommend? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's assuming I don't overbook myself. <laughs> um, but honestly, so like I said, I do a lot of my own, uh, I do a lot of my own projects. So I actually spread out my projects pretty good to where I, well, I don't want to be overwhelmed with re, you know, having to manage too many guys and having to keep a big backlog. So I actually keep myself pretty small. This is something that, that, you know, we've kind of a shift in our ideology that we've, we've made just in the past two years. But uh, when we first started out, we were like, oh, we want to be huge. We want to be a big company. I want to hire a bunch of employees. I want to put you know, managers in front of those employees and have a guy that does stuff and we're just making tons of money and we're off in the Bahamas, uh, you know, drinking uh, fruity drinks. Um, that was that was our intent, but then we we realized that it's, it's very overwhelming growing a business like that and having all those employees. And the stress level is the same, whether we're small or big. And the, technically the margins of the money that we can make is is roughly the same as if uh, you know what I mean is I guess your wealth is grown over time no matter what there's no get rich quick scheme so uh, in order to keep our stress level stress level manageable uh, we decided you know what we don't need to upscale everything we don't need to be trying to rush to scale and get bigger let's stay at a manageable level and keep our backlog manageable so uh the advantage there it's a it's a double-edged storage but since we are investors for us specifically i can keep backlog in my own projects my own projects are a lot of my backlog and then i can take on what i call retail third-party projects for paying customers um, as my time filler. Because I'm my own client, I can pull off of my job and I'm not pissing anybody off but myself. Now that comes with, uh, there's some, some sacrifice there too, right? Because we're not, we're not paying. It's not like we just have money in our savings account waiting to go buy houses. We're financing it just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, something I like to tell people all the time is like, if I was a, you know, if I was a, if I had a ton of money just sitting in my savings account doing nothing, I'd be a pretty terrible real estate investor because that money's not doing me any good sitting in a savings account, right? So our money is always invested. We try and keep it working. We try and keep it uh, out there doing something. Um, so we always have some kind of ongoing project where it's a, you know, whether it's up maintaining the rentals or an ongoing flip or, or whatever. So that's kind of the backlog that I keep as my busy work. The other thing I do is I just, I try not to staff up or, you know, I try not to build a big crew. Um, I want to have just enough crew that I can keep them busy, that we can get the job done quickly, but I hate to bring on a whole bunch of guys and then have to face the challenge of crap. I don't have any work for you guys. So I got to let you go. Um, yeah, that yeah. sucks. That sucks for every contractor. 
There's no way. It's very, very, it's very difficult to maintain a relationship with guys and hire them and fire them or hire them and, and lay them off because it's, it's, it's tough to get loyalty out of guys when you do that. And, uh, you know, a lot of these big, big outfits, they'll bring a bunch of guys on, keep them till the job's done and let them go. And then next time they need guys, those guys may not be available. They might have went and found them another job for somebody else, or they yeah. might know somebody that's going to keep them longer. Um, so I try to kind of stay at a level where I'm not going to let my, not going to have to lay my guys off, uh, which puts me, I, I typically any given day, I have two to three guys working for me. One of them I have all the time. And then uh, a couple guys that work for me on and off that work for a couple other outfits around here. But that's, that's how the small guys operate. Um, obviously you got the bigger, bigger companies that, uh, that just have, they just keep a bunch of backlog and they got their, um, their regular guys that they just have to keep, keep busy with a bunch of jobs. Do, so uh, I don't know. Do, that's, do, that's pretty sorry, much how I, I do it. <laughs> uh, I was meant, I was trying to say, um, do you usually, uh, or do they usually get paid by the hourly wage or you do a flat rate based off the size of the project? Uh, so it just depends um, on, I, I have different agreements with different guys. Okay. To be honest. Okay. I mean, I, it just depend. Yeah. It's, there's not a right or wrong answer. Some guys work better one way and some guys work better a different way. Uh, they, whatever. Depends on the on the people, and then obviously with subcontractors, you know it's by the job. Um, so I may, but like let's say I have a painter um, that I bring him in and I want him to bid the whole job and say or whatever. I I got let's say a, a garage. I need a garage painter. You bring him in and say, hey, how much paint that garage? He'll give me a price. That's easy enough because it's all right there. He can come and he can do it and he can leave. But it's different if I say, okay, I need you to come in every day and tape this wall and texture it after we get, you know, so that we can get such and such hung. I like basically work side and side with my crew, right? Um, it's, it's hard for me to get a one price for everything when they don't know what rooms are going to be finished or available for them. So I basically just add, tack them onto my crew and I'll just agree with them as a hourly rate as a painter, but a subcontractor that kind of just hires onto my crew as a, well, an independent contractor. Um, so, so then I've got an extra hand and they've got a job and I know they're a good painter. Uh, so a couple of questions as far as uh, like when you decide, when you remodel and flip, uh, what are your what are your favorite materials you use as far as flooring when you put uh, carpet, vinyl? What do you like to put down? Uh, it all just depends on the comps. Um, well, sorry, from a contractor perspective, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's really hard to beat <laughs> vinyl and just snap in. Uh, the quickest, easiest thing is you know the snap plank flooring, whether it's wood, vinyl. Uh, linoleum, especially on a floating floor, uh, that stuff is just, yeah, it's amazing to put in. Um, but you know, I, as, as an investor, I'm, I like a little hardier floor 
I, I base it all off of comps. What's everybody else got in there? Um, I think laminate flooring is just pure junk. It's it'll get ruined before you even install it. If you, you can't leave that shit out in the rain, you gotta have room to store it in the garage because if it even gets a little bit wet, it'll start to curl up. So I just I avoid laminate. Um, wood is awesome. Wood's also quite expensive. Uh, engineered, you know, engineered hardwood's awesome. Um, solid wood. I haven't actually done any solid wood because that takes quite a bit of finesse and, and some tools that What's the that I don't have on hand. Oh, you know, like solid, solid hardwood, uh, like the old original floor versus versus the new uh, engineered hardwood plank, which uh, okay. engineered hardwood they can snap in. You know, what I, mean? um, I typically I like to go with engineered hardwood. Um, just because wood is really in right now or tile uh tile is really great in rentals vinyl and tile are great in rentals um carpet i subcontract i don't do any carpet it's not that difficult it's just you gotta know <laughs> you gotta know all the manufacturers and sellers to get a good price on it um uh, okay there's some stuff that makes sense to go with a specialty contractor versus a general contractor right um, the general contractors typically they're bringing all the pieces together to meet and then they're filling in the gaps um, if you go with a specialty contractor like for instance carpet I don't buy enough carpet to be able to get a good price on carpet or to be able to install at a discount or have any guys that would give me a good rate to install it because I only install carpet every once in a while, let's say we do six flips a year, I'm only buying carpet every couple months versus carpet installers that are actual installers, they buy carpet every day. They get incredible discounts on the carpet material and they've got guys that can do it quickly because they do it every day. And those guys don't charge them a whole lot because they've got consistent work. It's the same with any contractor. A worker knows he's gonna get consistent work from a guy. He's happy to work for that guy at a much lower price. And like, for instance, the guys that I bring on from time to time, um, like I said, I got one guy that's just with me all the time, but I, I pay him less than the guys that I bring in every once in a while because I'm only bringing them in every once in a while. If I even offer them as low as I'm paying the other guy, they don't even want to work for me. So I have to pay a little more to get them. But my other guy, he just wants the consistent work. He wants a place that he, he wants a boss that he knows he's going to have a job every day for as long as whatever until he quits basically and so he's happy with whatever um and that's just kind of you know those are the, those are the things that contractors got to figure out and negotiate so switch uh so on material yeah oh shit my bad no go ahead on no i got i got off i got off topic sorry man uh yeah on material uh, <laughs> you know bedrooms well I, i'm that's the thing I'm getting into I'm getting into what I do in my flips, which is you're you're really more interested. Well, well that's what I was gonna. Well, that's what I was gonna switch over. I was actually gonna switch over to the to, to the flipping side. Uh, when it when it comes to that, um, because obviously your 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 mindset is different when you're a contractor and when you are mm -hmm. you're doing a flip, especially when you right. were talking about comps. Um, what was your best flip? What was the numbers on that? You don't want to share it. Mm. Hmm. Best 
margin or best i there's there's so many different ways <laughs> to describe right, best, we'll uh, we, our we'll recent our, our most recent one was pretty awesome i mean our, our 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 recent one was our highest uh sales value uh we sold for 450 we bought it for 250 and we put about a hundred thousand into it um so you know uh after after well Obviously, there's quiet costs and utilities and some other shit in there, but basically, you could easily say that the margin was around like 120. That's a pretty looks like a pretty good paycheck. There's a whole bunch of other costs that got chewed up by that, but yeah, taxes, uh, financing, um, permits. I mean, just all kinds of other stuff, tons of commissions and whatever fees we had to pay, right? But Still, I mean, I just did at the bottom line. We bought it for two fifty. We put about a hundred thousand in it, so that puts us at three fifty, and then we sold it for uh, we sold it for four fifty. So that puts us right around about a hundred thousand dollars margin. Um, our very first flip that we did was a similar house that we bought it for. We actually bought it for a hundred. We put about a hundred into it, and we sold it for two eighty. So we, you know, we've we've gotten better from those ones, but those were big big projects and they took a long time to do so whatever like six months profitability there was on it yeah you break it down by the month and it's like eh, not that great now we had a house uh it took us about a month to fix it up and uh you know put it on the market sat for a month and then we sold it but we made like thirty-five thousand on it that's to take two months to make thirty-five thousand versus six months to make a hundred thousand um you know the, that's that's why i say there's there's good there's different versions of good and then the best i honestly the best one that we've got we bought it didn't do nothing to it sold it the next day for ten thousand more than we bought it that is by far the best one we've done because we made ten thousand in one day essentially and you didn't do anything to it nothing bought it sold it to another investor it's like the fast, like a fast wholesale almost, a fastest flip. It was, it was, a, it was a wholesale. Well, we call it a wholesale, but uh, uh, we didn't because, I mean, I guess you could call it a wholesale. We actually closed on it. I mean, we we borrowed money <laughs> and uh, no, actually, on that one, we didn't even borrow. We literally paid out of pocket. We bought that sucker and turned around and sold it to somebody else uh, for just enough to make ten thousand dollars and cover all of our. Uh, closing costs and stuff. So that was that was to me that was our best deal to date because it was it was so fast. It was just bam bam, um, and that was a good deal because we, like I said, we we didn't have to lift a finger really. So that's I mean when you don't have to do any work to make money, that's a good flip. The least amount of work that you can do and make money in the shortest amount of time, that's what I call a good flip. <laughs> I think uh, I, I actually talked to a guy that he does that. He literally buys them. Let's say he buys it for 40 and he he buys it in a particular area that he sees going up. Let's say they put a casino down and he gets the home and then he without even touching it, he sells it for 130 grand when he bought it for 40 grand and yep. doesn't even touch it. It's just sitting there because right. of the land that it's on. So I'm not that I'm not that good yet. And I don't know. I feel like uh, I feel I'm not I'm, I'm not good enough to where I feel like that's gambling. But I think he has it down to a science. Um, right. He's been able to do it so much. 
Uh, but uh, my 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 second to last question would be is uh, what is your, what is your end goal? Um, you seem to be doing pretty well for yourself. Uh, when does it kind of stop for you, or when do you say, "Hey, I've made it in this business"? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think that you know, people ask that question all the time. I don't really have a good answer for it. I, I, I don't really think that I have an end goal in mind. Uh, I get out of the rat race, so to speak. If you've never played cash flow, it's like the best game ever. Um, there's all these. If you ever played, if you ever played it, you, are no. you you're aware of cash flow? Rich, rich dad, poor dad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you talking about the four quadrants yeah. of cash flow? No, yeah, no, yeah, I'm talking about the game. It's a, it's a, oh, it's no. a board game. <laughs> no, no, I've never it's, played. It's uh, Robert, Robert, it's Robert Kiyosaki. My wife, yeah, my wife got me into all this through, you know, the rich dad poor dad. But then uh, she was telling me about the board game, and it's similar to Monopoly, but it's it's actually more of an educational version of Monopoly, and it's based off of all of Robert Kiyosaki's, uh, you know, uh, it's all all the things he teaches. Around the outside of this board is ultimately you're trying to get out of the rat race, and then there's all these different things that you can land on or choose as your your ultimate goal that that tells you that you've made it. And uh, and I don't ever know where to put my my cheese <laughs> my uh, my cheese to signify that that's where I want to go. Um, but I, to to me, I really it's just about the next step. Everything is to me is breaking it down more into all right, what's the next thing I want to achieve? And then after that, what do I want to achieve after that? So right now, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of getting into contracting. My wife's really wanting to get into multifamily, uh, like flipping apartments, uh, much larger uh, unit, uh, whatever, flipping multifamily apartments and stuff like that. Um, and I really just, I would love to get into just development, uh, developing new properties and, and building subdivisions is ultimately where I kind of want to go. Um, I don't know that I will ever retire because I really just, I like, I like doing this. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's, you're never working if, you, if you're doing what you love. Yeah. And so uh, uh, my final question is, uh, well, what is your rich state of mind? Why do you do what you do? Um, you, you seem to have, uh, what I like about you, you're very calculated, you're very structured. And so you're one of the first people I've talked to uh, in the contracting side that seems very calculated. And I guess it's because you're also an investor as well, but um, very calculated, very methodical in what you do. So uh, what kind of gives you that mindset? Uh, you know, wh where do you get all that from? And, you know, what is your why in all this? Um, well, kind of back to the, my answer, my previous answer, but it's really just because I've I'm doing what I've always wanted to do, really. I, I mean, I, I love every aspect of it. I love, I love the reals. I can remember being at my son's age. My son's about to be three, but I remember my dad building stuff in his garage, and I just I always wanted to be a carpenter. And, uh, I, of course, I went to school for engineering because it seemed like a good way to get a good education in, in carpentry without just being a carpenter. And then, uh, you know, I, I ultimately, I, I worked for a construction company for, for 12 years doing industrial construction, but it wasn't really fulfilling to me because I was just sitting behind a desk all the time. And I've always just wanted to be a, a very hands-on. I've always wanted to 
be able to make money uh, in real estate uh, and be very hands-on with the houses themselves. So really why I'm doing this is because that's just it's perfect. It's right where I want to be, you know, out there working on houses, swinging a hammer, designing stuff, uh, solving problems, even, you know, fixing a leaky faucet. I, I don't mind it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Wow. So uh, Jesse, I, I think you, you gave a wealth of information. I think you help, help you will also help clear up a lot of um, confusion and understanding between a relationship between a client and a um, contractor. And I think that helps because you are both. You are a, well, you're an investor and you are a contractor. So I think you kind of see both and you shift gears. So I think that's very unique. Um, and uh, I think uh, in this episode, this one will definitely get a lot of playbacks because I definitely, I learned a few things as well, especially with the contract, which will help alleviate my anxiety of getting so much down. Um, yeah. And so as, so as well as a lot of others. Uh, where can people find you at? Uh, so I've actually, I've got a uh, Facebook page. I've got a website too, but it's it's not simple. But for, uh, if anybody wants to just find me, go to my Facebook place, find me on my Facebook page. It's uh, Facebook slash S-A-F projects, uh, like safe, but without the E. <laughs> S-A-F projects. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. okay, and we'll make sure we put that information in the description of the episode as well. Cool. Sounds good, Anthony. I sure appreciate it, man. No, I appreciate it too. 